Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to another archaeogastronomical adventure with me, Thomas Dinas. Now, I'm pleased to say we're going back to the history of chocolate after having a, a break for one week when uh, on our previous episode we discussed um, briefly the long history of uh, Indian food and uh, curry with uh, sejal. So yeah, now we're going to go back to chocolate because the history of chocolate is long, fascinating and we haven't finished it yet just by talking about the Mayan chocolate. Of course, we have a lot more to discuss about the Aztec relationship with chocolate and then there is a lot of um, fascinating, tantalizing, scintillating history of uh, chocolate and chocolate houses in Europe. So, welcome back, strap in, chill out and enjoy the next part of our chocolate adventure. Hello there, sorry to interrupt. My name's Dr Neil Buttery and I'm host of the British Food History Podcast, a podcast that you, as a fan of the delicious legacy, might be interested in. I explore British food and its history in all its glory, with interviews with special guests, recipes, reenactments, and tracking down forgotten recipes and hyper-regional specialities. Previous topics include medieval eels, 18th century dining, curry, London street food sellers, breakfast, and the good old Yorkshire pudding. Search for the British Food History Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the delicious legacy. Cheers! So let's pick our story from the Aztec chocolate. One of the great um, works of botany in Renaissance time was compiled by Francisco Hernández, who was the royal physician and naturalist to the monarch Philip II of Spain. So he was sent there in, in the New World, in Mexico, uh, in 1570, in search for medicinal plants, of course. So, yeah, Hernández was in Mexico by 1572, and he remained there for five years until 1577. So he wrote on the plants of New Spain, Mexico, of course, which contained descriptions of over 3,000 species, along with their Nahuatl names, which is the Aztec language, basically. And they were illustrated by native artists. Unfortunately, we've lost this uh, original copy in 1671 when uh, the library of Philip II was destroyed by fire. There's a partially surviving poor copy later on. 
that survived and we have some information about it. So he, Hernandez, uh, was given the name, the Aztec name for the for the cacao tree, which goes something like Cacahuacuahuitl, something like that anyway, and basically compounded from the cacao and the tree words in Aztec. The Aztec informants of Hernandez told him about four cultivated varieties of uh, of cacao tree, which um, modern botanists believe that they are all of the Creole variety of uh, cacao tree we talked about in episode two. Of course, Aztecs loved cacao, but none of these varieties of cacao tree grew in uh, the highlands of Mexico. Remember, the cacao tree uh, needs warm and moist environment, and there was regular frosts in the highlands of Mexico. Where is Mexico City now? That was that was the area where the Aztecs came from. The cacao was coming from coastal Guatemala, usually, or from uh, Xoconochco. So in the Aztec society, um, the seeds of uh, cacao served both as uh, money and as a source of uh, a very elite beverage, in contradiction to the Mayan drink, which was drunk by everybody. Basically, the whole Maya society would drink chocolate, cacao drink. In the Aztec one, it was mostly a drink for the um, elites. There were vast amounts of cacao seeds held in the royal storehouses in the three cities um, of the Aztec alliance. There was sort of uh, in between a very secure um, <laughs> bank vault and uh, a wine cellar, the best uh, wine cellar of uh, someone's collection, basically. So by one source, we have that in the royal court and the palace of one of the kings, among other items of food, there were no less than 30,000 beans, cacao beans, coming in on a daily basis. Basically, in Mesoamerica, especially pre-conquest, the cacao seeds were measured in numbers rather than in bulk or weight, basically. So these 30,000 beans daily means they were supplied into the palace 11,680,000 beans annually. Of course, this figure could be exaggerated, for all we know. But uh, one of the royal palace's books listed an annual expenditure of nearly 3 million beans, which of course is still a huge amount of beans. Some of these dried beans were probably consumed in the chocolate drink and some as uh, salaries and other payments. Of course, in the royal palace of uh, Montezuma in Tenochtitlan, there were a lot more beans. He was a far more wealthy king than others. The chronicler Francisco Cervantes de Salazar informs us that the emperor's cacao warehouse held more than 40,000 loads, which means an astounding 960 million beans. Bernal Diaz del Castillo, who wrote the history of the conquest of New Spain, states that more than 2,000 containers of chocolate beverage with foam were daily destined for the soldiers of Montezuma's guard alone. According to Coe in uh, the book A True History of Chocolate, one of the reasons the Aztecs were so interested in chocolate was that uh, their native drink, um, Octli, was mildly alcoholic and drunkness was not looked upon favorably by the Aztec society, especially the higher echelons. So Octli was made of the juice of a few species of agave, when the agave plant had matured under favorable conditions, 
and showed signs of shooting up a flowering stalk, the base of the stalk was undercut, the stalk removed, and the basin where the stalk had been was scooped out. Large quantities of juice resulted and could be collected over a period of several months. This juice was allowed to ferment and turn to octli. Now, the Aztecs considered chocolate a far more desirable beverage, especially for warriors and the nobility. But even then, would not all accept it. The same kind of ambivalence operated here too, since cacao was seen as somewhat an exotic, uh, luxurious product, foreign to the austere life to which uh, they, and by they we mean the Aztec nobility, but also the Aztec um, way of life, was uh, set to look uh, upon favorably to their austere past. And perhaps they even associated chocolate with the luxury-loving people of the hot lands, the Mayan lowlands, basically where the chocolate drink originated. In any case, chocolate conquered uh, the Aztec society. So how did the Aztecs make chocolate? The basic Aztec method of preparing chocolate was about the same as the prevalent among the Maya. The only real difference is that it seems to have been drunk cool rather than hot, as seems to have been the case among the Maya of Yucatan, which uh, we've seen earlier in episode one. One of the earliest notices of this drink is by the hand of a man known to scholars as the anonymous conqueror, described as a gentleman of Hernán Cortés, whose description of the Nochistlán was published in Venice in 1556. These seeds, which are called almonds or cacao, are ground and made into powder, and other small seeds are ground, and this powder is put into certain basins with a point, and then they put water on it and mix it with a spoon. And after having mixed it very well, they change it from one basin to another, so that a foam is raised which they put a vessel made for the purpose. And when they wish to drink it, they mix it with certain small spoons of gold or silver or wood and drink it. And drinking it, one must open one's mouth, because being foam, one must give it room to subside and go down bit by bit. This drink is the healthiest thing and the greatest sustenance of anything you could drink in the world. Because he who drinks a cup of this liquid, no matter how far he walks, can go a whole day without eating anything else. Pretty powerful uh, statement there by our anonymous conqueror, in which he also adds, it is better in hot weather than in cool being cold in its nature. Bernardino de Sahagún, another chronicler of the New World, who was a Franciscan friar and missionary priest and pioneering ethnographer, basically he was very friendly with the natives, with the Aztecs, and he was very, you know, very, very opposed to what the Spaniards did to the natives. He wrote another account he learned, if he lived in Nahuatl, so he can communicate and he can understand what's happening. And he wrote everything down, basically. Thanks to him, we know a lot about Aztecs. So he wrote um, something about cacao, too. So fine chocolate was called um, precious thing in uh, Aztec, of course. Something like tlacuejali. Uh, and it was prepared by the seller. He gave us a very fine description of how the seller was preparing it. She grinds cacao beans, she crushes, breaks, pulverizes them, 
She chooses, selects, separates them. She drenches, soaks, steeps them. She adds water sparingly, conservatively, aerates it, filters it, strains it, pours it back and forth, aerates it. She makes it form a head, makes form. She removes the head, makes it thicken, makes it dry, pours water in, stirs water into it. Another chronicler, Frey Toribio Montolinia, says, Cacao is a very common drink. When ground and mixed with corn and other seeds, which are also ground, it serves well as a beverage and is consumed in this form. In some sections, they prepare it well. It is good and they consider it as a nutritious beverage. For Aztecs, there was not... Um, it didn't exist only one chocolate drink, one chocolate beverage, but um, many. Maize could be added and sometimes ground seeds of uh, saiba or silk cotton tree. But apparently, before these uh, cacao extenders were put in, the form was removed, then later replaced. However, these adulterated drinks were not in the, in the highest class of cacao drink, which was the kind of thing was served to the lords. Of course, popular in Mesoamerica was uh, the addition of uh, chili uh, to the drink, to the chocolate drink. Chilies which were dried and ground to a powder. Of course, given the vast and immense variety of chilies in um, Mexico day to day and back in the day, of course, then we can imagine that the drink could vary from anything to mildly pungent uh, uh, to extremely hot and spicy. And yeah, we do occasionally drink chocolate this way. Now in our modern days, it seems to start coming fashion again. But yeah, chili powder definitely makes a very tasty component to chocolate. And especially if we, if we add it into something like a chocolate ice cream, it gives you a nice afterburn on each spoonful. Going back to Sahagun, our Franciscan friar, he also tells us that um, there's a menu of chocolate drinks served to the ruler, which comes at the end of the description of uh, the foods for the Lord, basically. It gives us description of maize breads, soups, casseroles of fish and meat, fruit, as well as tamales containing maize tassels and the pits of uh, ground honk plum. And we hear about uh, the feeding of the people, who, the people who were fed from the kitchen, the ruler, da-da-da, the nobility, and so on, the guards, the priests, the singers, and so on. And then it goes down to the fine chocolate beverage. Then by himself in his house, his chocolate was served. Green cacao pods, honeyed chocolate, flowered chocolate, flavored with green vanilla, bright red chocolate, flower-cold chocolate, black chocolate, and white chocolate. Sahagun claims that this made one drunk, which is interesting, because uh, could be true if it was fermented, I suppose. But yeah, um, the notion of honeyed chocolate seems to suggest that they also had something um, sweet as well. Some, some of the chocolate drinks were sweet too, not only bitter or spicy. Now all the flowers and the vanilla would have been dried and ground into a powder. There's a chocolate recipe from Francisco Hernandez, which contains three flavorings, which were highly prized by the Aztecs. So the first is something, the ear-shaped petal of a flower, a tree of uh, the Castor double family, basically which grows in the tropical lowland forest of uh, Veracruz, Oaxaca and Chiapas. So this was one of the most highly valued products brought back with the merchants in their expeditions, the Aztec merchants. 
So this was uh, the premier chocolate flavor among the Aztecs. But what did this flour taste like once it has been turned into powder and added to the fine cacao? From uh, Sahagun's uh, writings, we know that uh, he's, he's basically cautioning us against taking too much of it, warning that uh, the excess could lead to drunkness. But from uh, modern um, tastings, people say that um, tastes like black pepper with a hint of uh, bitterness. Other sources compare it variously to nutmeg and allspice and cinnamon. I guess we can say that it tasted um, spicy. So the second flavoring, according to Hernandez, was the black flower, which is none other than our familiar vanilla. So in contradiction to its Nahuatl name, the vanilla flower is actually greenish-yellow, and the plant is a climbing orchid. And maybe there's an interesting thing to have an episode about vanilla, uh, and the history of vanilla at some point. But yeah, the plant is a climbing orchid, and it's a, it is the pod that is black, the vanilla pod. So vanilla was uh, another spice of the tropical lowlands, and it was extensively cultivated along the Gulf Coast of the Mayan and Aztec Mexico, particularly by the Totonacs of Veracruz. And the last in Hernandez's uh, tree of chocolate flavorings is the string flower. And this is a member of the Piper Sanctum and probably actually related to black pepper. The flowers, which um, are tiny, and according to Hernandez, if you take it with cacao, it gives an agreeable taste, is a tonic and warms the stomach and perfumes the breath, combats poisons, alleviates intestinal pains and colics. Chocolate in the Aztec elites was served at banquets, but it was uh, never sipped or drunk during the feast. It was served at its end, along with smoking tubes of tobacco, just as um, in... Um, Western formal dinners we have at the end of the meal port, brandy, and cigars. In his memoirs, the conquistador Bernal Diaz de Castillo writes, and from time to time they brought him some cups of fine gold with a certain drink made of cacao, which they said was for success with women, and then we thought no more about it. But I saw that they brought more than 50 great jars of prepared good cacao with its form, and he drank of that, and that the woman served him drink very respectfully. Of course, this is um, the feast of Montezuma, the Aztec emperor, in uh, in one of his banquets, which yeah gives us um, a highly, perhaps extravagant uh, picture of uh, Montezuma, but also quite inaccurate. It was supposed to be in the emperor's meal, a colossal event, with over 300 dishes prepared especially for him. Another very important group um, in the Aztec society was uh, the Pochteca, which is the long-distant traders, which obviously they traded cacao as well. So they were quite, um, they were quite high in the Aztec society. So yeah, they held banquets and they regularly included large amounts of chocolate drink. And um, an aspiring merchant could rise in rank within his guild. But this was a very expensive business. So to climb up the socioeconomic ladder, an individual was obliged to host a large and expensive banquet for his fellow merchants. It's time, of, obviously, you go higher up the ladder. So yeah, they were costly and, and there were vast expenditures of food, cacao drink, slaves, 
for sacrifice and so on. Even hallucinogenic uh, mushrooms were consumed. So, yeah, Sahagun, again, goes into a great detail on what kind of food was served at these affairs and how, as usual, so the coda to these mighty meals was the chocolate. And then they ended with chocolate. To carry it, one placed the cup in this right hand. He did not go taking it by dreams, but likewise went placing the gourd in the palm of his hand, and the steering stick and gourd rest he went bearing there in his left hand. These were to pay honor to the lords, but those who followed all were served with only earthen cups. So we can get a glimpse of the chocolate etiquette among uh, the merchant guild. You see, the fine gourd and calabash cups were for the higher echelons, while the lesser mortals drank from clay cups. The warriors, which were another backbone of the Aztec state, were another group permitted to drink chocolate. Cacao, in fact, was a regular part of uh, military rations. Uh, Cacao was ground and was made into pellets or wafers and issued to every soldier on campaign, along with toasted maize, maize ground into flour, toasted tortillas, ground beans, and bunches of uh, dried chilies. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What was the value of uh, the cacao currency in, in pre-conquest times? Sadly, we will never know exactly. There aren't many data left from uh, pre-conquest uh, Aztec society. But throughout the colonial era, there is extensive documentary information uh, since many market and wage transactions continue to be conducted uh, with cacao beans. The daily wage of a porter in central Mexico was uh, about 100 beans, which uh, puts into perspective the following list of commodity prices from uh, 1545. So one good turkey hen is worth 100 full cacao beans. A turkey cock is worth 200 cacao beans. A jackrabbit or a forest rabbit is worth 100 cacao beans. A small rabbit is worth 30. One turkey egg is worth 3 cacao beans. An avocado, newly picked, is worth 3 cacao beans. When the avocado is fully ripe, it will be equivalent to 1 cacao bean. One large tomato will be equivalent to a cacao bean. A large axolotl, one of the salamander that they live in the lakes around Mexico City, is worth four cacao beans, and a small one worth two or three cacao beans. A fish wrapped in maize husks is worth three cacao beans. Of course, it's quite interesting that um, cacao was used as money and was also drink for the Aztecs and the locals and the natives, but for the Spaniards, the first and most important thing was it was money. They didn't really like it. Uh, they appreciated the cacao's money, but conquistadors, uh, they were baffled and often repelled uh, by the cacao's drink. Certainly, an Italian called Girolamo Benzoni, who was in the New World uh, and tasted the first drink, uh, the, he was one of the first Europeans who encountered this drink. In 1575, uh, he writes... Chocolate seemed more of a drink for pigs than a drink for humanity. I was in this country for more than a year and never wanted to taste it. And whenever I passed the settlement, some Indian would offer me a drink of it and would be amazed when I would not accept, going away laughing. But then, as there was a shortage of wine, so as not to be always drinking water, I did like the others. The taste is somewhat bitter. It satisfies and refreshes the body, but does not inebriate, and it is the best and most expensive merchandise, according to the Indians of that country. But of course, as we've seen on the first episode, chocolate uh, conquered um, the Spanish too, especially the Spanish women. They started making it, they started drinking it, and then making it, and by the latter half of the 17th century, it was all very commonplace in Spain, and there is an account of how uh, the Spaniards manufactured the chocolate. Basically, it's telling us that the Spaniards, being the only people in Europe, that they have a reputation of making chocolate to perfection. And so we have a, a recipe from uh, 1644, from an account by Antonio Colmenero de Ledesma, which was translated in the rest of Europe and in England as well. We have an account, um, we have an, a recipe about um, how to make cacao. So, recipe of Antonio Colmenero de Ledesma, 1644. 100 cacao beans, 2 chilies, or black pepper may be substituted, a handful of anise, 
ear flower, powder roses of Alexandria, one vanilla, 60 grams of cinnamon, 12 almonds and as many hazelnuts, 450 grams of sugar, and a chiotity taste. So this was formed as a dried mass in form of cakes, rolls, or bricks. And then it was placed into hot water in a special jug or chocolate pot, uh, which, uh, yeah, basically, then Colmenero de la Desma was preparing the chocolate. And from there, obviously, we have the spread of chocolate throughout Europe. And we already had the coffee house, which was one of the great establishments, and especially in England became an institution uh, retaining social and political importance well into the next century. Now, once uh, the chocolate um, arrived in Europe, of course, it became a very desirable and luxury drink from uh, the aristocracy and the higher classes, and it was expensive and also difficult to find. It was coming from all the way from uh, Mexico, so yeah, there was this problem of um, being highly sought after. And of course, it was a very expensive and luxurious drink. So, in England, what happened is the first chocolate houses, like coffee houses, are more or less the same time really happened. But yeah, the chocolate houses of uh, London were places of debauchery and Machiavellian plotting. So the history of this, of, uh, of this drink at this stage is almost certainly a more <laughs> indulgent treat for us compared to the concoction that uh, the people drank then. So the Stuart period and early Georgian Londoners were drinking a watery, bittery, or too sugary drink called chocolate. But uh, the more conspiratorial and mystic part and parts of uh, the cacao consumption was the social element of it. Grand squares and hidden alleyways uh, of St. James's Piccadilly have many tales to tell from the opulent and depraved 17th century London life, especially the political life as we will see very soon. St. James Square, at one point, was home to six dukes, seven earls, one prime minister, and his mistress. Among this super-elite neighborhood, a cluster of chocolate houses developed. In these steamy, smoky, wood-paneled rooms, noblemen ordered a drink that bear little resemblance to the sweet milky stuff of today's coffee chains. The hot chocolate of the 17th century, was an extravagant brew infused with citrus peel, jasmine, vanilla, musk, and ambergris. All exotic, highly sought after, and very expensive flavorings, let's say. The chocolate houses of the 17th and 18th century were dense of iniquity, where noblemen plotted the downfall of kings and gambled their fortunes away. One of the first to open in 1693, was the Cocoa Tree, its interior reminiscent of a Viennese coffee house. Its atmosphere, more Machiavellian court. When builders drilled down into the foundations, um, like a couple of decades ago or so, I think, they found a tunnel leading to a tavern in Piccadilly. This was to provide the traitors, which frequented this coffee house, with an escape route. Today, the Cocoa Tree spot that coffee house now is the headquarters of uh, RAC, which is the Royal Automobile Club. It's a very exclusive members' club with private rooms and a pool. 
Another one was White's Chocolate House, which was uh, opened uh, by Francesco Bianco, an Italian who presumably changed his name to Francis White when he was in England. So White's Chocolate House was so renowned for its debauched goings-on, it was dubbed the most fashionable hell in London. And this was immortalized by Hogarth in his uh, Rake's Progress painting, which, uh, which was depicting a group of uh, people so engrossed in gambling, they failed to notice the fire blazing in the room. A few years later, from its opening days, White moved from, uh, to St. James Street, and now it's the London's oldest gentleman's club. It's where Prince Charles had his tag to. Jonathan Swift famously described the establishment as the bane of the English nobility. Because this chocolate house, as you know, aside obviously from serving the fashionable drink of the day chocolate to the fashionable aristocracy of the day, there were also the places where these people plotted to overthrow the government and the king. And also it was the place where people gambled away literally hundreds of thousands of pounds on anything. They would gamble on the most ridiculous things. So White's may have been one of London's most infamous chocolate houses, but it wasn't the first. Most historians cite one run by a Frenchman on Queen's Head Alley, just off Bishopsgate, and Dr. Matt Green, uh, in his book London, A Travel Guide Through Time, uh, tells about someone called John Dawkins living near the Vine Tavern in Holborn, which was offering chocolate at a... reasonable rates, as early as 1652. So this political tumultuous period for London was um, was happening at the same time while Dawkins was uh, dishing out his drinking chocolate. Imagine there were two political parties that they were trying to um, get their grips into power and into the popular opinion. In one hand, you had the Tories, who were the, in quote marks, divine right royalists, and the Whigs were generally anti-Stuart. As such was the climate in London back then, and chocolate houses began to shake off uh, their humble beginnings and their reasonable rates, and instead they developed into hangouts for the hobnobbing politicians and social climbers who had the means to foot the bill for luxurious chocolate. In fact, Charles II so feared chocolate houses' political plotting their idle chit-chat and eventually rampant gambling that he tried to ban them in 1675. So yeah, imagine the contradiction. So today, chocolate is a commonplace drink, but at the time it was served as the ideal catalyst for the soon-to-be dens of debauchery. After all, it was a new, exotic drink from Americas, and having arrived in Europe in the 16th century, it landed um, in London 100 years later, as we said, shortly after another equally mysterious drink, the coffee. So this uh, popularity and this novelty obviously was also bolstered from uh, pseudo-scientific marketing ploys, which we know all too well today too. So coffee became synonymous with sophistication, and coffee houses became popular places for people of various social standings to discuss business, politics and science. Meanwhile, chocolate, the more expensive exclusive substance, was imbued with powerful and infallible aphrodisiac properties, apparently. So Samuel Pepys, the famed diarist, uh, even hailed it as a hangover cure. Movers and shakers clamored to get their hands on it, 
even the early days when the chocolate was likely to be very bitter or sour. Chocolate, and all it came to symbolize, may have drawn the initial crowds, but it was the chocolate house culture which kept them coming back. The regulars weren't going to exclusive chocolate houses to drink chocolate. They were going to hang out with other people who could afford chocolate. And of course, not only that, and gamble as well. They were definitely going to gamble. There were the places to go for gambling. So Dr. Matt Green refers to the legendary White's betting book, which dutifully listed every triviality bickered over and bet upon by members. So bets were placed on whether the man uh, dragged in off the street would live or die, on whether a man could live 12 hours underwater, and on which raindrop could reach the bottom of a window pane first. Most extravagantly, £180,000 was dropped on the roll of a dice, an astronomical figure both at the time and today, of course. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. Honestly, the subject of chocolate is so vast and fascinating, I don't know if I can stop it here. If you liked what you've heard, please do give us a follow and a review. If you have a subject that you would like me to delve to, or an ancient recipe I can make a video for, please get in touch and let me know. The podcast can only keep growing with your help and support. We have more than 60 episodes on all subjects from garum and silphium to the cuisine of the ancient Sumerians and the hermits of the Sinai Desert. Thank you for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.